He wheeled around and then pointed a finger directly at Reverend Morey as he stormed over to the jury box. In this case before you, Mr. Morey, instead of receiving damages, very justly deserves to be severely punished. Liz and Nigel looked at one another in stunned silence over what was coming out of Patrick's mouth. Welcome to the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, with your hosts, Max, Liz, and Nigel. This podcast is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And I'm your narrator, Denny Brownlee. By the way, as you listen to this episode from the audiobook The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, keep in mind you can download your very own copy of it by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you'll find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, epicorderoftheseven.com. And before we get started on today's portion of our adventure, let's bring out Max, Liz, and Nigel, your Epic Order hosts. Greetings, lads and lasses. Oh, bonjour, mes amis. Uh, I cannot wait to dive into our story today, for this is a big day for Mon Henry. Indeed, my pet. I must say, I find this juncture of the story quite riveting. Why, the table is set, as it were, for Patrick Henry's big day in court. Aye, but his dad be the judge, and his uncle be opposing him. Uh, that don't sound like much fun to me. Well, uh, by the same token, some, like perhaps Patrick Henry, we shall see, uh, uh, may consider the challenge to be inspiring. It all depends on your perspective, old chap. Uh, me what? Perspective. Uh, he means how you look at things. Well, when I look at things, I use me eyes. That is not what... How do you do it? No, Max. He means how you uh, perceive things from your point of view. Again, I view things with me eyes. Uh, I think they're referring to your outlook on things, Max. Again, I use me... I'm not finished. It, uh, you know, in other words, how you feel about things in general. You know, uh, positive or negative. We oui, are you an optimist or a pessimist? Uh, I think I'd be Presbyterian. <laughs> no, 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 Max. Uh, she meant, are you the type that's likely to see the glass half full or half empty? Well, I drink from a bowl, and when I left it, it was just about gone. Mm. Uh, much like this entire line of reasoning. Uh, we, Nigel, uh, so uh, why don't we stop looking and start listening to today's chapter? Hi, good idea. Uh, did you say I? I? I said I, good idea. I, 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 that is a lot of eyes. I say, old boy, uh, with that many eyes... Uh, you must see incredibly well, what? <laughs> not I, Mosey. I, I, not I. Who? Uh, uh, I think I'm starting to see what you mean then. Oh, so you are seeing it with your own eyes? I, uh, uh, no, I mean, uh, uh, just read the chapter then, lad. Sure, and I'll use my eyes. Chapter 42, A Voice in the Court. Reverend Patrick Henry wore a look of disdain as he glared at the jury, wrinkling his nose at Samuel Morris and Roger Shackelford. Sennes Papien! Uncle Patrick must have changed his mind! Liz cried in shock and alarm. She looked over at Patrick, and his knees looked as if they were about to buckle. Patrick was already struggling to speak. Now this? 
I simply cannot watch, Nigel lamented, burying his face into Liz's fur. Patrick gazed over at the faces of those fine men and the other dissenters and citizens sitting on the jury. The distant strains of Samuel Davies preaching to the crowd of dissenters and rallying Virginians to fight for freedom filled his mind. Samuel Davies, his pastor, friend, mentor, champion of liberty, an obedient citizen of the law despite the heavy hand of government controlling religious freedom, and his role model for being a brave man of God. This incredible man had come under such harsh treatment by Uncle Patrick and his father. Patrick's heart stirred afresh with anger at such injustice, but at the same time he was torn over his love for his father and uncle and his sustained loyalty to the Anglican Church. Patrick's upper lip and brow beaded with sweat. He reached into his pocket for a handkerchief to wipe his face and felt the soft petals of the marigold laurel. Suddenly images flashed across his mind in that moment. Jimmy falling into the dirt after the bully pushed him in the race, shouting, Get out of my way, urchin! Seeing himself helped Jimmy to his feet. Come on, Jimmy, I'll help you. Jimmy catching his breath. Thanks, Patrick. I hoped I could win. Telling the boy who didn't just want, but needed, the food prize. You'll win next time. Patrick looked up and saw Mr. Smythe standing at the very back of the room next to his Uncle Patrick, with dirt on his face. At that moment, he looked just like Jimmy in Patrick's eyes. The struggling farmer's imploring eyes once more needed his help. Above Mr. Smythe's head, on the wall, hung the portrait of King George II. Patrick's eyes narrowed, and his anger started to rise as he realized that the Parsons were no different than the bully who had shoved Jimmy into the dirt in order to take what he wanted as his prize. The Parson bullies had shoved Mr. Smythe and the people of Virginia into the dirt, while the King bully stood at the finish line waiting to give them their money prize. The words from Patrick's dream filled his mind. Fail to speak or not to speak, Patrick. You must decide which will keep you from your miracle. At that moment, the passage from Jeremiah filled his spirit. Stop this foolishness and talk some sense. Only if you return to trusting me will I let you continue as my spokesman. You are to influence them, not let them influence you. They will fight against you like a besieging army against a high city wall, but they will not conquer you. For I am with you to protect and deliver you, says the Lord. Yes, I will certainly deliver you from these wicked men and rescue you from their ruthless hands. Patrick opened his eyes and lifted his chin. He suddenly felt a torrent of words starting to rise in his throat, like the hot lava of a volcano seeking its fiery exit. Patrick clenched his jaw, threw down his handkerchief, and stood up tall and straight, striding confidently over to the jury. No, Mon Henry, Liz thought as her heart caught in her throat. It is time to find your voice in this court. Gentlemen, isn't it a privilege to sit where you are sitting? You have the honor of upholding the laws designed to protect and provide for the highest good of those fortunate enough to call themselves Englishmen. Patrick began, 
smiling at the jury, who nodded back. He lifted his arms and turned to the audience. And isn't it a privilege to sit where you are? His Majesty's loyal subjects, free to observe the open and time-tested administration of justice for the highest good of the people. The people quieted down and immediately felt privileged to be seated there in the room. Patrick turned to his father and the other justices sitting high above the courtroom and bowed low and with deep respect. The people are truly fortunate to have legal guardians who fiercely protect the law from being ill-used or manipulated for purposes that could bring harm to the people. Judge Henry and the other justices nodded in appreciation. The Parsons sat up tall and expectantly, awaiting their turn to receive due appreciation for their service for the good of the people. But Patrick simply gave them a pregnant stare and said nothing. After allowing them to squirm for an awkward moment, he turned and walked back to the jury. Liz and Nigel clung to one another with renewed excitement. Yes, the law is one of our most prized possessions, for it provides safe boundaries for liberty, which is our most precious jewel, Patrick continued. He gave a nod of respect to some of the assembly members seated a few rows back. And laws are made by the trusted representatives of the people whom they have appointed to be their voice. Our noble assembly has the time-honored tradition of tirelessly serving the people and enacting laws that see to their welfare. The two penny acts were laws passed in order to provide for the highest good of the people. We all know that our tobacco fields have struggled in recent years from drought and worms that devoured the tender plants. Patrick gripped his fist and looked around the room, eliciting nods from the people. This crisis choked the livelihood of those who simply sought to provide a roof over their heads and food on the table for their families. Patrick paced back across the bar and locked eyes with Mr. Smythe with a smile. His face lit up as he saw that his hypnotic voice had the people hanging on every word. These laws were temporary, meant to provide a sturdy bridge of relief to cross those troubled waters until better days could return to our fields. They were meant for the good of each and every person in this courtroom, he said, pointing to various individuals scattered across the room. Patrick then walked over to the jury and placed his hand on the railing. Gentlemen of the jury, you have been told by my worthy opponent that your charge here today is simply a matter of mathematics. He says the law that our able assemblyman passed is null and void by the hand of the king, and that Mr. Maury is due damages for a lost opportunity of extra coin in his pocket. But I submit to you that the equation you seek is not as simple as it would appear. The Parsons frowned and looked for any sign of displeasure from the court. They saw none. Judge Henry looked at no one but his son. Before you proceed to your mathematics assignment, allow me a moment to present another equation which may help to refresh those of you whose skills may be rusty from boyhood, Patrick quipped, drawing soft chuckles from the jury. He then lifted his hand and pointed to the portraits of the kings. We Englishmen live under the protection of our noble king. 
and we are therefore to be his loyal and obedient subjects. This is the equation. One protective king plus his loyal subjects equals the desired sum, freedom. Can the gentlemen of the jury confirm that my mathematics here are correct? The jury chuckled and nodded in agreement. Patrick smiled and playfully hit the jury box banister. My tutor will be most pleased to know that all was not wasted on my mathematics instruction. The audience joined the jurors in a humorous moment, and Judge Henry wore a slight grin from the reference to himself. Patrick gave his father a knowing nod. Patrick then held out his hands as imaginary scales. Government, then, is a conditional compact made up of mutual and dependent covenants. He kept his hands in perfect balance as he looked around the room. The king provides protection on one hand, and the people provide obedience and support on the other. A violation of either of these covenants by either party throws the equation off, he said, holding one hand low and one hand high, and therefore removes the obligations owed by either party. Patrick allowed that concept to resonate for a moment as he assessed the jury and his audience. Murmurs of agreement filled the room. We are separated by a vast ocean from our king, the House of Lords, and the House of Commons, but this equation must somehow be kept in check here in America for the king, Patrick continued. He looked up to the ceiling as he pondered his next question aloud. How can a king three thousand miles away know what his loyal subjects need in times of immediate crisis? How can his majesty swiftly respond to provide the protection he has agreed to for his part of the equation? Patrick crossed his arms and tapped a finger on his chin as he thought this through, feigning he didn't know the answer. This allowed his audience to answer the question for him in their own minds. Suddenly he snapped his fingers with a coy grin. I have it. It must be that for our colonial government, the Burgesses represent the House of Commons, our council represents the House of Lords, and our governor represents the King. Any law passed by His Majesty's representatives should therefore be deemed valid until the King decides to disallow it for some reason. Should it not? Patrick's face then grew serious. The Two-Penny Act had every characteristic of a good law, made for the highest good of a people in a moment of supreme crisis, a law made for the protection of the people, which we have determined is the king's obligation in our equation. Suddenly, Patrick's voice filled with blood-chilling authority and boomed with such force that the people's hair stood on end. The two-penny law could not be struck down by the king without violating the covenant he holds with his people. Such a disallowance by the king is a glaring act of misrule, and he has neglected the interests of this colony. Patrick shouted. He pointed his finger directly at the portrait of King George II. He has not only voided a good law, but he has voided the entire equation for his loyal subjects. By this conduct, the king, far from being the father of his people, has degenerated into a tyrant. 
He therefore forfeits all rights to his subject's obedience to his ruling on the matter. At this point, Mr. Lyons cried out to the parsons, The gentleman has spoken treason, and I am astonished that your worships can hear without emotion or any mark of dissatisfaction. The parsons murmured their opposition while one or two cries of treason, treason, rose from the onlookers. Nigel thrust his fists up high in the air. Brilliant! He has turned from a defense attorney into a prosecutor, putting both the king and the parsons on trial. The shock and awe of the people paled in comparison to what was happening up on the judge's bench. One or two justices frowned their disapproval, while Sam nodded vigorously in agreement. John Syme and Anthony Winston beamed with satisfaction, but properly restrained their show of emotion. Patrick's father, however, did not. Judge John Henry's eyes filled with tears as he watched his son ignite the entire courtroom with a voice that heralded the cry to protect that precious jewel of liberty. He didn't bother to wipe away the tears that flowed down his cheeks. His son was no longer a failure in his eyes, for Patrick clearly understood and embraced all his father had tried to teach him. His son had finally found his life's calling and was pushing it to the limits of greatness. Patrick pushed his spectacles atop his head, and his eyes flashed from blue to ebony as he gazed up at the smug Parsons. He paid no attention whatsoever to the outbursts and cries coming from opposing voices in the courtroom. Suddenly, a distant memory echoed in Nigel's mind. Something about a future human who would push his spectacles up on his head. Liz smiled as she watched his approach. The Parsons wanted to hear a word from my Henry. <laughs> no, they shall have it. And what about the established clergy, who are also the king's representatives? The king is the head of the Church of England, is he not? Patrick asked, as he nodded to the spectators, who had no choice but to agree with him. The courtroom fell into a death-like silence, for he was about to take them into uncharted territory against the parsons. The only use of an established church and clergy in society is to enforce obedience to the laws, Patrick exclaimed as his voice slowly rose in volume with each word. When the clergy ceases to answer these ends, the people have no further need of their ministry and may justly strip them of their appointments. Patrick punctuated the air with sweeping gestures and pointed an accusing finger at the parsons. Our own clergy of Virginia, in this particular instance, have come against and defied the purposes of this colony's legislature. Instead of being seen as useful members of the state, they ought to be considered as enemies of the community. He wheeled around and then pointed a finger directly at Reverend Morey as he stormed over to the jury box. In this case before you, he told the jurors, Mr. Morey, instead of receiving damages, very justly deserves to be severely punished. Liz and Nigel looked at one another in stunned silence over what was coming out of Patrick's mouth. Their jaws hung open in disbelief. 
Patrick was nowhere near finished. We have heard a great deal about the benevolence and holy zeal of our reverend clergy, he said in a lofty, mocking tone. But how is this manifested? His stern voice roared back. Do they manifest their zeal in the cause of religion and humanity by practicing the mild and benevolent precepts of the gospel of Jesus? Do they feed the hungry and clothe the naked? Oh, no, gentlemen. Instead of feeding the hungry and clothing the naked, these rapacious harpies would, were their power equal to their will, snatch from the hearth of the poorest parishioner his last hoe-cake, from the widow and her orphan the last milk cow, the last bed, nay, the last blanket, from a woman with child. Immediately the twenty parsons rose to their feet from the bench, stomped down the steps to exit the bar, and filed out of the courtroom to the haven of the courtyard outside. The people murmured and cast glances of disgust at the retreating parsons. "'You shall repent of this, Patrick! You shall repent of this yet!' Uncle Patrick shouted above the din of voices as he joined his fellow parsons for their hasty retreat out the door. Patrick allowed a delicious silence to settle in as the guilty parsons he had painted with his fiery brush of accusing words stomped out. Unmoved, he faced the court and kept right on, not missing a beat from the visual protest of the parsons. The equation here, gentlemen of the jury, is not one of mathematics, but of freedom or bondage, Patrick continued. A people who are denied the privilege of enacting their own laws are not free, but are under the oppression of tyranny. And unless you wish to rivet the chains of bondage on the necks of your fellow Virginians, I hope you will not bypass this opportunity to make such an example of the plaintiff. From this day forward, let your decision serve as a warning to Mr. Maury and to his brethren not to dispute the validity of our laws. He stopped briefly, not to catch his breath, but to allow his hearers to catch theirs. Finally, gentlemen of the jury, we come to the simple mathematics you must now conduct to uphold the dignity of this court and your sworn obligations. Patrick told them in a calm tone that brought the jurors back to the practicality of this situation following the emotional hurricane he had unleashed on them for an hour. Under the ruling of the court, you must find for the plaintiff, but you need not find more than one farthing. Patrick looked into the eyes of each juror and gave an affirming nod, willing them to do his bidding. This will accomplish all that the defense desires. No one spoke a word. The only sound in the courtroom were Patrick's confident footsteps as he walked back to his table and took his seat. After a breathless moment, the people instantly erupted in cheers as Lyons rose to his feet and attempted to break the spell that Henry had cast over the jury. It was no use. The jury quickly filed out of the room. Maury and Lyons huddled in a feverish discussion. Judge Henry and Patrick shared a timeless moment of unspoken words as their eyes met. Liz and Nigel swayed together in a joyous embrace. 
He found his voice, mon ami, Liz exclaimed with tears rolling down her cheeks. Everything that was poured into Mon Henry since childhood flowed out of him into the court of Hanover today. Dieu est bon. Nigel's whiskers quivered happily. Oh, the exquisite justice of it all. Their celebration was abruptly cut short when suddenly the jury filed back into the room. It had taken them less than five minutes to reach a decision. Judge Henry motioned for the sheriff to call the court to order. The sheriff pounded his stick on the floor. The court will now come back to order. The crowd immediately grew quiet. Has the jury reached a decision? Judge Henry asked. Yes, Your Honor, Samuel Morris answered, rising to his feet to represent the jury. The jury finds for the plaintiff... The damages of... He paused and looked at Patrick with a smile. One penny. I object, boomed Lyons' voice. This verdict is contrary to the evidence. Your Honor, I humbly request that the jury be sent out again. But it again was no use. Overruled. Clerk, please record the verdict of one penny to be awarded to Mr. Morey, Judge Henry quickly replied. I wish to move for a new trial, Lyons cried with an upraised hand. Denied, Judge Henry shot back. Then we implore an appeal to the general court, Lyons pleaded. Granted, Judge Henry shot back. This court is now adjourned. This entire exchange between Judge Henry and Lyons had taken place amid the growing voices of the people, scarcely able to contain their excitement. Patrick shook hands with his clients, rose to his feet, and walked over to Lyons and Maury. He dug into his pocket and retrieved a single penny. He placed the coin on their table while the two men looked on in stunned belief. I believe this covers the damages owed to Mr. Maury, and settles the matter for my clients. Good day, gentlemen. He bowed, and then turned to walk back to his table. He winked at Johnson and Brown, before escorting them down the one step back across the bar. Instantly the people rushed over to Patrick, and with frenzied delight they picked him up and carried him on their shoulders out of the courtroom. People were shouting, Huzzah! and embracing crying and laughing with uncontrollable excitement as they paraded their champion around the courtyard. Tears of joy filled Patrick's eyes as he caught the glimpse of his small family standing across the street in front of Hanover Tavern. Patsy and John were jumping up and down excitedly, and Sally blew him a kiss. He struggled to reach into his pocket while being jostled, but he gradually pulled out the marigold laurel, kissed it, and waved it high for Patsy to see. Max sat there grinning as Liz and Nigel joined him in the courtyard. Looks like the law did a grand job then, Max greeted them. Oh, it were the verdict. Nigel frowned and shook his head. Unfortunately, the jury awarded Maury four times the damages Patrick had recommended. Max's eyes widened. Four times? Then why are they celebrating? Nigel broke out into a jolly chuckle. 
<laughs> because Patrick had suggested they award Maury a farthing, which is one quarter of a penny, old boy. <laughs> it was brilliant. So just a penny for the person? Max answered happily. Now that's what I call justice. Liz watched Uncle Patrick pulling away in his carriage. The driver looked up in the sky as Cato circled overhead. The man crouched down in his seat, as if expecting to be dive-bombed. Max, you and Cato were out here. Did you see what happened with Uncle Patrick that made him decide to return to the courthouse? Aye. When he were down the road a bit, he saw them two dissenter lads heading this way, so he told his driver to turn around. He wouldn't about to miss the case if those lads were put on the jury then, Max answered, wearing a sly grin. But me and his horse had a wee discussion while Cato swooped down and encouraged the driver to take the long way back to the courthouse. Splendid! Reminds me of my aerial dive-bomb maneuvers on pigeons, reminisced Nigel, preening his whiskers, way back in the day. C'est magnifique! Merci, Max! This was quick thinking on your and Cato's part, no? Liz exclaimed. No telling what would have happened if Uncle Patrick had tried to interfere with the jury selection. Well, I see that you discovered the fiddle's riddle about the voice in the court, came the voice of a gentleman standing next to the animals. They turned to see Gilliman, dressed in the finery of a gentleman and wearing his magnificent red cloak. Gilliman, oui, but this riddle took many years to solve, Liz pointed out. Aye, but we solved it then, Max added with a definitive nod. It had a lot of moving parts, though. I say, but it was a thrilling turn of events that came together, analyzed Nigel. The meeting of the man and the moment came together for this crucial point in history. Gilliman chuckled. <laughs> you all did remarkably well with your assignments, and yes, this is indeed a crucial point in his story. Uh, speaking of history, do you realize that Patrick is the same age as Cicero and Demosthenes when they discovered their voices when arguing the law in the courts of ancient Rome and Greece? It would seem that twenty-seven is the perfect age for an orator to find his voice, no? Liz marveled. Mon Henry has an exciting future ahead of him now. Nigel's eyes widened with realization as he saw Patrick's spectacles still sitting on top of his head as the people paraded him about. By Jove, I've got it. Also, speaking of history, you foretold something way back in our Egypt mission, Gilliman. If I remember correctly, you said there will be one special human who keeps his spectacles pushed up on his head when he's bothered and determined about things. You will find him to be quite the exceptional fellow. The little mouse grinned and put his own spectacles atop his head. It was Patrick Henry you spoke of, wasn't it? Gilliman smiled and nodded. One and the same. Liz looked over as the people set Patrick down on the ground. In the midst of the people back-slapping him with congratulations, she saw Patsy running across the street toward him. She ran into her father's arms for a tight embrace, and he then put the marigold laurel around her neck and kissed her on the forehead. 
Liz's eyes brimmed with happy tears. You were right, mon ami. He is quite exceptional. I say, our Patrick used a mathematics analogy in court today, and it would appear that the next part of the riddle does as well, Nigel noted. A voice in the house makes seven words too short. I have no idea what this could possibly mean, but it will undoubtedly be another intriguing quest for us to solve it. Gilliman looked up to see Cato soaring above the happy events. Patrick was surrounded by family and friends who escorted him over to Hanover Tavern for a big celebration. If you hurry, you'll catch your first clue in the tavern. Liz and Nigel looked at one another with growing excitement and took off after the humans. Adieu, Gilliman, Liz shouted. The next riddle waits for no one. Max sat with Gilliman a moment longer. I'm glad you stopped by for the happy day, lad. Uh, can you tell me how me last Kate be doing? Gilliman bent down to pet Max on the back, smiling while his blue eyes twinkled. Why don't you go to France and see for yourself? You've earned a furlough to see your bonnie Kate. Besides, she could use your help with her Lafayette mission. Wolves have always been your specialty. Max's face lit up with joy, followed by concern. Wolves? Aye, he growled. Take me to France right now, lad. With that, Gilliman covered Max with his cape, and the two disappeared from the courtyard. A pair of eyes narrowed from behind a hedge as they watched Gilliman and Max disappear. Ah, bientôt, the voice hissed. France it is. Oh, très bien, uh, but I am so conflicted. I so love the mention of my beloved France, but uh, I do not like the voice who is saying it. Aye, it sounded like trouble, and we don't really know what will happen next. I say indeed, and that sort of intrigue is exactly what makes for a great story, and thus the work of a great storyteller, huh? We, oui, uh, you refer to Miss Jenny, of course, and did you ever wonder how she goes about creating such a wonderful story? Aye, and it's more like a bunch of stories all wrapped together in one big book, then. It must take an awful lot of preparation. Right, and so in today's Jenny's Corner, we shall pose that very question and follow that up with some exciting news for the writer in you. We, oui, but first, uh, oh, Miss Jenny... Liz, what's on your brilliant mind today? These incredible books that you write. Uh, we are wondering, uh, how do you prepare for such an undertaking? It's a loaded question to ask me how I prepare to write a book. But let me give you a couple of teasers. And then if you're interested in hearing the full story, I have whole workshops on that. Um, but my basic overall strategy of how I approach a book, first I decide, what am I going to write about? What interests me? You have to be passionate about what you write about. You can see my passion comes through in these books. And so I've been researching the American Revolution for about 14 years now, right? I'm writing five books on it that are over 600 pages. If I could not stand that era of history, the books would stink, wouldn't they? And I don't think they do. I think they're pretty good. And y'all, this works for whatever papers. Whenever you get a choice 
of what to write about, zero in on something that you like, that you're passionate, that you can get excited about. And then I began mapping out like a mini outline. Okay, so this book is going to cover from Lexington and Concord through the Declaration of Independence. Okay, right? Because it's like going on a trip. You have to know first where you're going and then how to get there. You got to know your starting point A and your ending point B. And then comes the next part, which I hate, but I love, is the dreaded dun-dun-dun outline. Oh, I hate outlines, but I love them. I hate them, but I love them. It's a love-hate relationship because they're a pain to put together because I don't just write a simple outline. I do a detailed, comprehensive sentence outline where I name each chapter. I give it a title so I know content-wise what's going to be in that chapter. And then I map out the three layers of my book. I map out historically what's going to happen in that chapter, fictionally what's going to happen in that chapter, and then fantasy. What are the animals going to do in that chapter? So if it's, let's say, the Battle of Bunker Hill, I've got to map out who all is going to be there and how many chapters is it going to take to really tell that story right. I might budget like three chapters in an outline, and then when I get right onto it, I find out, nope, I got to do it in four or sometimes I can get it done in two. But I have to have this roadmap that gives me, especially with history, chronological guidance of where I'm going to go. Because I'm mapping out what the animal characters are doing in all these related scenes. So the outline is crucial to know where I'm going. And there's a lot more to it than that, but that's the basic way I go. So kids, if you're teachers are making you do it. It's okay to hate them, but start loving them because they're there to help you get from point A to point B and having an awesome, awesome adventure in writing. I say, well stated, Miss Jenny, especially realizing that that was just an abridged portion of what you teach in your workshops. So that begs the question, how do we go about taking part in one of those? If you're interested in hearing the full story, on my website, epicorderofthe7.com, I have a school slash groups page, and that lists all these workshops that I have on how I do what I do. They're specific to specific books, and they're so much fun, and I try to give you the behind the scenes of how I pull each book together. Well, thanks, Miss Jenny. But along those lines, Jenny has something brand new that she is offering to all her followers, especially you young, aspiring, patriotic writers. You see, Jenny's not only passionate about America, she's passionate about helping raise up the next generation of young writers, maybe someone like you. If so, Jenny's epic patriotic camp is returning for 2022, uh, but with a twist. This year's camp will take place online, so no matter where you live, if you're age 9 to 15, you can attend, and get this, you'll get to assume the identity of a revolutionary character, conduct research, and then write a story that will be published in your group's book, for sale on Amazon. Uh-huh. So, you want to become a published author this summer? While reenacting a bit of the American Revolution? Well, then join Jenny L. Cody and her author colleague Libby McNamee as they seek to build lasting friendships and launch some inspired young writers like you. But hurry, space is limited and it'll fill up quickly. To reserve your spot, go to Jenny's website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. That's right, spell it out, epicorderofthe7.com.
Oh, that sounds très magnifique. Hi, and revolutionary. Indeed. Well, meanwhile, to continue to see how this story unfolds, join us for our next episode, which will take us to both sides of the pond. And of course, by pond, Nigel is referring to the Atlantic Ocean. Well, of course, uh, that, that is a common euphemism for the ocean. Hi, but uh, for a wee mosey, a pond could mean uh, a mud puddle in the middle of the driveway, then. Well, now, see here, old boy, that's a bit shallow. Aye, but see, the ocean be deep. Well, indeed, Max, it is far deeper than... Far deeper than this conversation, no? No. I, I mean, uh, yes. I mean, uh, why don't we just plan to see you next time? Once again, the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast, is produced by Playful World Ministries, a department of ACT International. All of the Epic Order of the Seven characters and adventures were created by and written by Jenny L. Cody. And remember, you can download your very own copy of the audiobook, The Voice, The Revolution, and The Key, by visiting audible.com. That's www.audible.com. And you can find the entire collection of Jenny L. Cody's Epic Order of the Seven books by going to her website, www.epicorderofthe7.com. And I'm Denny Brownlee. Thank you for listening, and join us next time on the Epic Order of the Seven, the podcast. Have a grandi! A bientôt, mes amis! Huzzah! And ta-ta! And always remember, you are loved and you are able.